You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to our website where you can read our articles, follow us on social media, or come and join us at one of our live events. In this podcast, we speak to James Heapy, who is the current Minister for Armed Forces. Before entering politics, he served in the British Army and deployed on operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and Northern Ireland. His ministerial profile covers operations and operational policy, which includes Ukraine and Russia, Europe and Africa, some of which he goes on to talk about. First of all, thank you very much for joining us today. It's very kind of you to spend some time to talk to the Wavell Room. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how are you? Good, invigorated, juiced. There's a sort of lot of lot of really good thinking going on about the command paper because the, you know, the integrated review refresh was a sort of macro refresh of foreign defence and security policy. But the, the, that triggers a moment of reflection, introspection within the MOD is quite helpful because not only has it created a subtly different demand signals to us on what the nation asks of us as a whole, but we've been busily learning lessons in the last year or so from what's been going on in Ukraine. And, and that means there's a lot of really exciting thinking going on in the building and indeed you know, people pumping it in from outside. And we've tried to embrace that. We've had a sort of decided that you know, before we get down into a sort of really constrained period of writing where you're trying to sort of you know, do the kind of traditional bit of a government paper it would be really good to have four or five weeks of slight chaos, you know, a bit of, and put a call out for papers, engage stakeholders, people who are often critical of us, the sort of the, the frustrated visionaries within our organisation, as well as sort of you know, industry, scientists, innovators, people, companies, businesses, sectors in the economy that don't normally work with us, but possibly have utility in the future. It'd be really interesting to speak to them and so yeah, it's a really it's a thick skin type because there's an awful lot of people that tell us that what we're doing isn't quite as good as we thought it was there's a bit of validation from some of the things that we did a couple of years ago where people are sort of actually rather saying that ukraine does validate some of the lessons we learned some of the lessons we thought we'd learned from earlier conflicts and observation of trends but it's hugely exciting it's really invigorating to be in the center of it all that call for papers how open are you for challenging that? Completely open. I mean, if someone writes to me and says I'm a whatever, then probably not going to get read too enthusiastically. But but if people want to write in with their thoughts and their, you know, they, I can't promise that everybody's going to see their contribution cut and pasted into the main document or even footnoted as a as a reference. But but we are genuine in our desire to hear from people. There's loads and loads and loads of ideas whizzing around this building. There's lots of really good defence thinking. You, you, as you would imagine, you know, the chiefs are an extraordinary bunch of people who know their craft. But we are a pretty well-established senior team across the chiefs and across the ministers and across the senior civil servants. And that brings with it a confidence to sort of say, OK, you know, tell us what you think. You know, and we're, we're happy to enthusiastic to, to, to read what people have got to say. When we spoke to CDS, one of the things that he said to us was he, he dreams of going too fast. Yeah. He dreams of making changes and, and being able to sell people, no, you know, I actually I can't do the change that you want to do because we're moving too fast. What do you think is slowing the Chiefs down? No, no, no. I would hate it to be characterised as 
as as the slowing down comes from the Chiefs. That's that's not the case. I think in, I think the Chiefs are often as frustrated as anybody. I think that there is a there's a consequence of twenty five or so years of not having to think about a big fight and that impacts on the way that you do your logistics and enablement you know for Iraq and Afghanistan strategic enablement was airlift and sea lift that you could book three four five years in advance because you knew when the rips were every six months there were as I said to the defense select committee the other day I I, deeply invidious to blame any other government of any color for the hollowing out in inverted commas of our force because if you rewind to the late 90s and early 2000s the criticism that parliament made of the mod then was that we had got too much logistics we had got separate logistics trains for each service we had got 10 warehouses when one would do we held grotesque amounts of ammunition in our stockpiles that was wasteful so in the immediate wake of the cold war we were regarded as profligate in that regard. So people made very sound decisions. If you think back to sort of the early 2000s, we had a chief defense logistics who was specifically asked to get after the wastefulness and in inverted commas of the logistics system. And we've gone to a place where our logistics and supply chains is just in time supply chains, logistics that is is closer to what big companies would do all of which is the most cost-effective way to do business as usual but wastefulness you could also and our cold war forts predecessors would say told you so wastefulness in their language would be resilience Mm. and then there's a whole just load of things around process and regulation and to give you an example and the air force and fenners are working on this one so it's a safe example to give because the Air Force themselves realise that that it's unsustainable. You have situations like Nimrod crash, led to the Haddon Cave inquiry, mm. led to a, a a decision that sort of risk holding around any defect on an airframe sat with the AOC, maybe maybe delegated to the station commander. Well, compare and contrast that to a Battle of Britain movie mm. when a corporal comes out to the spitfire that's been shot up over the English Channel with a spanner and some glue, patches it back up, rebombs it, gets it back in the sky as a wargoer. There's a sort of regulatory burden, a risk aversion that we've been able to introduce because we haven't had that war fighting as the lodestar that actually when you start to think, okay, well, you know, if we're a warfighting organization, can we afford to have that sort of regulation and risk aversion in the organization mm. you can start to chip away at? So, you know, that's um, no one group of people are the, are the anchor that is slowing it down. It's just over 25 years as an institution, we've got used to a situation that is very different to the one that we're in now. We haven't needed to be as dynamic as we have to be to react to the threats in the world as they are now. And so rediscovering our dynamism and peeling away all of the process, risk aversion, regulation that, that, that I think and that many in the, uh, the rest of the senior team here think is so stultifying and drives cost into all of our programs 
is a theme that really emerges and that maybe the command paper is an opportunity to start trying so to that, get off. That risk of it just deep in the system needs to be pulled out because it's learned behavior over a long time. Yeah, and it's no, like I said, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly that. And it's a really important point to make because, you know, if, if Ukraine hadn't happened, if the threat of you know, peer on peer, well, yeah, and, and, we'd have, and we would have carried on doing so because why would you not seek to be as safe as possible in everything you do, as as exquisite in everything as possible in everything that you buy. So, you know, I don't, I, this is, this is, this is no criticism. It's the way that it is, but, but it's really, it's really exciting to hear that sort of challenge coming through. Would you say that this is going to sound like a really nasty right? but we need to move to a culture of being opportunity aware rather than risk averse. We teach ourselves that with every risk, there's an opportunity and we've got a culture that has, that has just moved too much towards minimizing the risk instead of maximizing the opportunity. Yes, definitely. Like that spanner-turning aviator who came out to fix the plane saw, right, I need to do this to get that thing working, and it's back in the fight. There's the opportunity. Yeah. I think lots of people listening to this would say, we know that Mission Command and our own innovative instincts and our cunning you know, make us able to distinguish between the stultifying process that limits us in our in camp versus our ability to think brilliantly in combat. I've no doubt that we've got a whole load of brilliant people who are trained at Dartmouth, Sandhurst, Cramwell, Limpston, Brecon, Catherine, who are able to think freely in the attack whilst conforming rigorously to process in barracks. But, but it does just... It just just feels and it, it eats up huge amounts of time and cost within our workforce and within our system that limits our ability to practice the day job and i do worry that if you create an environment for 999 days in a thousand when rigid conformity and adherence to a process the thing that cds was brilliant i think it might have even been on the wave room just to demonstrate the power <laughs> of people who write articles for if it wasn't the rabel room for something very similar <coughs> it was definitely the wave room somebody wrote an article a week or so ago it was an army subunit commander about jsp whatever for pay and allowances being 740 pages long and the Singapore tax code being 300. That JSP is right now on CDS's bookcase in his office, being waved at anybody who goes in as an example of where we've got to, because it's nuts, right? So that's the power of your listeners for a start. <laughs> he and I were texting, we both read it, and we were texting each other kind of WTF over the weekend. And by sort of Monday afternoon, the entire building is aware of kind of, you know, that as the vehicle for as the latest example of sort of profligate process. And I just, I just, it just stands to reason to me that if you, if you, if you make everybody conform to, to the nth degree, the majority of the time, and then all of a sudden you say to them, like, here are, here are some boundaries to avoid you committing fratricide on your flanks or whatever else, but otherwise the intense all you get, go do. Like, it just feels to me anathema. And so we've got to, you know, that's not to say, like, it's not, your listeners shouldn't be kind of like going down the RAO's office and sort of burning copies of, of the JSP there and then in front of them. But, but, but I do think that we have got to get closer 
to living and operating as we would fight. And that's one of the challenges that I hope this DCP refresh process starts to push into the system. Where do you think that Sadu gap exists within the armed forces? You must go on so many visits, see so many great units delivering really great stuff and you know you probably feed them with I'd love for you to be doing this and you should be doing more of that and then ultimately it never happened where where do you think that Sadie gap exists money just at the very headline that bizarrely you know we're an organization that gets 50 billion quid roughly with which to equip ourselves and to staff ourselves but nothing really with which to do anything thereafter so you know we can there's there's sort of money for overseas exercising and the the navy i think probably have it easiest because once the ships and the fuel and the people are bought and paid for they can kind of go wherever I rarely meet a unit that isn't you know like you sort of sit down and sort of give heapy's view of west africa right right let's, let's go yeah boom minister we're on the plane ah, there's no budget so that's the first thing then I think if we found the money, then they get thwarted by enablers. And I think one of the things, again, we should challenge ourselves to look at is, you know, there's a, there is a big difference between operating and warfighting. But in warfighting, we tell ourselves that the way we deal with casualties, you know, dragging them onto the axis, back to the company A post, regimental A post, or, you know, in a ship, you know, they would be, the surgeon would just get on with saving whatever life he could but you know you're in the middle of an ocean in the middle of a gunfight like what are you going to do so there's a sort of an approach to medicine in war fighting but the problem is is that our approach to medicine in anything short of war fighting has been completely bent out of shape by the brilliance of the role two in camp bastion and the brilliance of the Merc crews and the fact that you've got a and e trauma surgeons on on helicopters landing and that's become the benchmark now for how anybody anywhere operates. And I think we have to be realistic that we now need to be in so many places concurrently, not in a gunfight, just, you know, but there is a threat. But we have to be there because if we're not there, China will be or Wagner will be. And if we're going to be in all of those places, we might need to accept that the medicine looks a bit different. Now, there are medics within our organization who work with some of our more special people who are trained to a paramedic plus level. And so there's an argument that if we're going to have lots of small deployments, we've got OPVs around the world, we get you know, small training teams of rangers or, or security force assistance battalions or, or, you know, or, or just part of the field force, you know, a, a detachment of of, of RAF sort of helicopter instructors, whatever, going off that, that, you know, we have to be, I think, more comfortable with the medical pathway we provide for them, have to be maybe more realistic about their need, their abilities to live locally, source food and drink locally, rather than everything requiring a big sort of, because, you know, you can, PGHQ are, are alchemists, you know, do an amazing job of getting as many feet on the ground as they do given the amount of enablers that we have but a sort of a, a platoon or troop level deployment can often require enablement that would be you know closer to maybe what a battle group or brigade might need and it's sort of we just have to be able to do better at having more chips on the table without it sucking up all of our enablers because the other part of that is we do need to reconcentrate our enablers behind the fighting force because 
I remember a year or so ago, the things that we were looking out for when we were trying to work out when the Russians were actually going to cross the line of departure were key bits of enablement. Those were the things that we knew would move last bloodstocks, as an example. If you know that's what you're looking at, your key thing that they really mean it is them properly resourcing their enablement rather than it just being an exercise. There's deterrence in us having all of that stuff lined up behind our field force because then our adversary knows that we are credible and ready and not hollow. How would you sell the IR refresh to the most junior soldier, sailor, aviator? The IR refresh actually came from Liz Truss and her principal motivation was a toughening of the language on China. That's what started the process. And the new prime minister, his line is around sort of a robust pragmatism with China. So there's a sort of slightly different emphasis there. But he decided to carry on with the defence view on the basis that enough has happened in the world in the last year or two to make it worth looking at foreign defence security policy again. And if you look at the IR as a document, I don't think it, I don't think it's a massive change really in terms of its macro signal to defence. The stuff that's new or the stuff that's been strengthened is around the threat of sort of subversive activity, information manoeuvre into the British public discourse, interference with our politics, there's a good section on that. There's some really good stuff on statecraft and economic resilience, which the pandemic and then the war have brought into really sharp focus. The vulnerabilities of a completely globalised free market approach to to your industrial base. And from that flows some really interesting stuff around semiconductors, rare earths and sort of critical supply chains and what sort of manufacturing capacity you have to re-onshore or nearshore in order to ensure your sovereignty versus other stuff that is just a bit more retail that could that can be manufactured in wherever and if it's not available in time of global crisis then kind of we'll get over it so i would say to your most junior listener the advantage of the ir refresh is that it's the second time government has forced itself to think about defense and security matters inside two and a half years and there'll be another ir probably after the general election and to accompany the next spending review And they should take some comfort from the fact that defence is sufficiently important to those at the top of government at the moment that it is being thought about so urgently and so regularly. I think that they should take some confidence from the fact that the things that they will know to be self-evident, the the fact that there aren't enough tank transporters, there aren't enough medics, there aren't enough field hospitals, there aren't enough things in our stop in our stockpiles there aren't enough signals nodes that you know that all the all the stuff that means the machine doesn't quite work the stuff you have to pretend is there when you're on a test exercise rather than is actually there has been brought into really sharp focus because we are seeing the ukrainian armed forces um fight heroically and impose far greater cost on the russians but we are learning an enormous amount about what it takes to sustain a force in the field through our very close ties to the Ukrainians. And so I, I hope that they will be excited. I, I also would take the opportunity, however, to be very, very clear that nobody has turned around to defence and said, look, we'll leave the safe open, you help yourself to whatever you want. Even if they did, we 
shouldn't think that the answer to having all the money in the world that we could want is just to buy more of what we've got or to have a bigger armed force that looks like a marginally more modern version of what we've got. We've got to force ourselves to, to learn the lesson of Ukraine. And that in itself is not straightforward because everybody can find a lesson in Ukraine that, that underlines their point. And I'm watching your Twitter feed. You know, there are plenty of people that do. There, you, know, you can bet people who make opposing points underlined by the experience in Ukraine. But the one thing that I think everybody would agree with is that the speed at which the Ukrainians have been able to drape technology over older equipment and use that, that draped technology and the digitization of older platforms allows them to spiral really quickly. Those who really know what they're talking about observe that the cat and mouse of the EW battle is now on such a fast loop that literally within weeks of having a capability, the Russians figure out how to counter it. So then you go again and again and again. And, and I, I think if you, if you draw that out as a central lesson, it's not just your speed of thinking and your speed of military reaction and contact. It's your speed of innovation and your speed of of introducing new capability and contact, those are actually both equally important in terms of winning the, winning the war. What would you say to those who say both the, the IR and the IR refresh were, were too much about taking what we have and orientating it to a threat rather than going from the threat and figuring out what we need? I'd say while there's an element of truth in that that we would be the first to admit and embrace, I would... I would reject that as a sort of full characterization because I think there were some quite big things done in the previous command paper, mm. some quite big capabilities that, that, that were binned. Part of the sort of expectation management, you talk a good game about process and speed and threat and tech. There's also a whole heap of stuff on contract that you can't do tons about. And we would do our best to start with the threat would do our best to take the lessons that are coming out of Ukraine. We'll do our best to challenge ourselves and not just be sort of slaves to the, the totems of the past around frigates or tanks or planes, or whatever else, mm. and, and instead to, to try to really embrace the opportunity to start to reshape the force where it needs to be reshaped and where we got it right in the first place to double down on what we, what we decided last time around. It's been quite busy for defence, uh, and it doesn't sound like things are going to let up. What operations could people be excited about, whether that's from a UN perspective, Special Operations Forces perspective? What's in the pipeline? I think that the, the armed forces now have a variety of things open to them that I personally think is much more exciting and much more interesting than the Iraq or Afghanistan every six months treadmill that I was on 15 years ago. Bizarrely, as you go around the force, they all think that going backwards and forwards to Afghanistan every six months was more interesting because you were getting shot at or blown up. And I don't know, I mean, I just, I'm not sure I remember that getting blown up was all that much fun, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, 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 but I guess the grass is always greener and, you know, that, that's that. So I think that now, there is this opportunity whereby 
a part of the force, if you're an anti-submarine warfare frigate, or if you are in an armored brigade, or if you are in a fast air squadron, and if you, you know you are, you are rethinking about being at the sharp end of the spear in a war fighting role that you haven't really been thinking about for for twenty years or so, and I think that could be quite invigorating. But it is also, you know, the army. You know, interestingly, all three of those unit types of unit would complain. Well. I'm in an armored division, so all I'm doing really is going through a two-year cycle that ends with Cabrit. If you're on an anti-submarine warfare frigate in the high north in January, that is a special sort of bleak. And you know, and if you're in a fast air squadron, you know, actually it's quite demanding. And if you're doing QRA, for example, quick reaction alert, you are you know, at the highest readiness pretty much that that we have. But genuinely, I think for that part of the force. It should be quite invigorating to, to have spectral warfighting, giving you know, putting a bit of juice into into the way that you do your business, and then for how we sort of operate, I just think it is the the opportunity is amazing. And if I were if I were a subaltern now, I would be really excited about the opportunity to go off with small teams to interesting parts of the world, engage with different armies, navies, air forces. You know, I might not get shot at, I might not get blown up, but in terms of the life experience I'm gaining and the relationships I'm building around the world, like I just think it's kind of what I sign up for. I would I would definitely be seeking the opportunity to do stuff on UN missions. I would probably like to try and learn a language because I can see how language skills become ever more relevant you know in the world that we're now in and because all of a sudden the sort of challenge of Russia and Iran the competition that comes from China is all across our sphere of influence every day every how and so all of a sudden you know you might have a you might have a sort of team of pipers go out from a Scots battalion to do something in in the Middle East, or you might have, you know, routinely you see buglers and pipers from the Gurkha Battalion in Brunei popping up all over the South Pacific. And you know, that might just be the bit that, you know, after, after the Chinese trade delegation has left, turning up at the embassy the following night and just remembering that relationship, that closeness, that we are the reference Army, Navy, Air Force for dozens of Army, Navy's Air Forces around the world. And the role that we play from the ceremonial all the way through to our willingness to train, advise, assist, and increasingly accompany forces, you know, that is that is what maintains that institutional relationship. And so, you know, yeah, it's not the same as Sangin or downtown Basra every six months. But I don't remember that being all that much fun. Whereas the ability, the opportunity to travel to all sorts of different places and to know that you're genuinely having strategic effect when you do so because you're pushing back against growing Chinese influence or you're denying space for Wagner, that's like, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Can I take you back? You're just talking about the, the speed at which the Ukrainians were able to uh, lay a technology on top of existing technology they have. 
don't think we are matching that speed. No. And it's a, to move aside to that, I'm going to attempt some French here, but uh, l'armée de terre, the French army. Is I was with you. I reckon <laughs> most of your listeners were. C'est vous plaît. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you were in the toilet. So right, the armée de terre has, has brought a, a vehicle from concept to, I think it's an FOC now, the Scorpion Vehicle Fleet, in six years. Yeah. Why can't we do that? There's all sorts of theories, a lot of which I think would be unhelpful and controversial to rehearse in full to you today. But I do think that the chief executive of DNS, Andy Start, has looked at the way that we procure with a fresh set of eyes and is somewhat concerned by what he finds. I think the new Minister for Defence Procurement, in, in fairness to Jeremy Quinn, who was in the job for two years before him, Jeremy was equally clear-eyed about, about this. But we over-spec, we over-regulate, we over-integrate. So there's a sense that not only are we going to specify everything that, you know, that you know, has to have spec it to the ends of the earth, but everything then has to be kind of really highly integrated into the platform and everything else. So you just end up with it taking years to get something onto contract because we're never quite clear on what we want. Then, because we try to spread the cost by having an extended program of delivery, then we take ages to bring something into service because we kind of over-regulate that. It's a very, very, very live topic. And the, the difficulty is, is it does not matter how brilliant the future concepts people are in each of our services or in the Defence Concepts and Doctrine Centre in Trivium. You cannot know for sure the totality of what a platform of a certain type is going to need in 20 years' time. That the innovation curve is now exponential. And so even if you have the best foresight possible, the innovation curve will overtake during that extended procurement process and you will end up bringing platforms into service that are already out of date. I think that the key that we need to get to, and I accept that there are some capabilities that are just exquisite and need to be engineered to that level of assuredness. But I think that there is growing unanimity or consensus, growing consensus around the idea that the platform is a commodity, it's vanilla, you can't know exactly. You know, if, if you're building a platform that is going to be automotively good for 30 years or the hull is going to be sound in the water for 30 years, you cannot possibly know everything that is possible technologically technologically in the life of that platform so buy a pretty vanilla platform buy it with an open architecture you know, system architecture buy it with a common data protocol make sure that that system's architecture and the data protocol is common across defense so that the domains integrate ever more seamlessly and then spiral it and buy it with the intention to spiral it and then and then fine i'm happy to take the embarrassment in inverted commas of a oh, hippie's just bought a tank without a gun but i don't know i mean i just i might i might want to spiral a gun on it for years one to five but they then might want something completely different be like lasers who knows right but but the point is you can't like if you're buying something that's going to be in service in 2050 think back 30 years to where the technology curve was then yeah. the technology curve is only ever steepening how can we possibly know what needs to be on a platform by then? 
although your portfolio isn't defence procurement. Yeah, you wouldn't know it from um, that answer, would you? I'm, I'm raging across everybody's business. But you did used to have a procurement role. Yeah. And you must have a lot to do with the defence industry. Is there anything that you have seen that's caught your eye and think, that's cool? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and it, But interestingly, so look, you, can, you see stuff from BAE, Babcock, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin all the time that you're like, oh, that's incredible. It's insane. Um, and it is. But the stuff that actually really catches my eye is when non-traditional defense companies come to you with an application for their sort of sorcery. And seen a lot of that, you know, because I, I have the ministerial lead on supply of munitions, equipment, technology to, to Ukraine. And yeah, you know, gone around the world trying to find... 152 and 122 and manufacturing capacity for that stuff which is all pretty sort of industrial age but I've also you know had companies coming who can do incredible stuff to sort of retrofit satellite technologies onto onto old bits of kit and they're not they're not in the defense orbit normally but they've kind of answered one of the calls for for capability and and so the other day, I, you know, I did a podcast where I just said, you know, sometimes it's a bit maddening because I know that I am providing to the Ukrainians a capability that we're still years away from getting in the British Armed Forces because the British version of that capability, yes, it will be marginally better, maybe if the technology curve doesn't move in the meantime, which of course it's going to, but we're waiting another three, four, five years for that, whereas there's people who can sort of just inject bits of code in now. And so, I don't know, we just, loads of the stuff around our digitization, we, I think we sort of seek to overassure. The banks managed to keep our personal data and our money pretty safe day in, day out through apps that can, encrypted apps that can sit on the average iPhone. And if you confront yourself with that reality, that there are plenty of organizations beyond who can do stuff at a level that is akin to secret with quite a lot of assuredness and they can roll out those sorts of change programs in just a couple of years and they work, you start to make some judgments about the traditional way of doing defence procurement and the, the, the organisations with which we traditionally work. And so what is, so how do we then, how do we fuse our brilliant industrial ba- defense industrial base and all of the innovation that sits within that with all of the other stuff, particularly from tech that can start and data that can start layering in over the top and you know, merge that together. That That is very much Alex Chalk's business and he has got some ideas for how to do that that, that, are, that are pretty impressive. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about unacceptable behaviors in the armed forces the Times recently reported yet another brigadier in the army had been removed from post, which talks about bullying, harassment and discrimination. What role do you play in dealing with that? Well, look, I mean, the, the glib answer is uh, that stuff tends not to come across when it tends to go through Minister of Defence people and veterans and the Secretary of State. Uh, but we sit down and we talk about it often enough as a team that, as you'd imagine, we all have we will have a view. I think that the Army, Navy, Air Force do not need to be in the vanguard of societal change. It's not for us to, I think, show the rest of society the way on that. We've got 
enough to be doing with the day job. But we cannot be a backmarker because if we want to attract and retain the best people, we have to be an employer that treats our people in, in a way that they would find elsewhere in the jobs market. Okay? There'll be companies that are, that are more out there than us, but what it's unacceptable for us to be is alone in being behind. And so when you hear examples of that, it is concerning. I mean, I'm, I'm loath to be a minister that talks about that specific case because, A, I have no idea what the detail is, really, and I mean, just unfair on someone who presumably is still under investigation. But, but I do think that we have a responsibility to just try to behave to one another in a way that is, that is reflective of the way that society now requires. All of which doesn't in any way infringe on that there is something in command that at some moments you just have to say JFDI. You know, I, I think it is perfectly possible to have a command authority and to have king's regs on your side that says if you want to go straight up the middle and take the machine gun nest it's in your gift as the commander to make people do that without that translating into an overly aggressive assertive and arguably bullying way of doing management i was thinking with this stuff it comes back to class wits you've got to have a military political side and people that are all in balance with each other and if the military doesn't meet the needs or the expectations of both the politicians and the people we're not going to be as efficient and capable as we could be because they're not going to want to join us as you identify yeah but but just for the sake of consistency 20 or so minutes ago i was talking about an over-regulated force that needed to live and operate it closer to how it fights so i'm aware as i say there's command and there's the ability to just say do it and then there's a sort of peacetime management style that feel, that's slightly at odds with what I was saying earlier on about let's administrate ourselves and procure in a way. I just think that on that, on that people piece, there are far, far more commanders who manage to be human and compassionate and reasonable in the way that they manage in peacetime while still being able to be ruthless and compelling in the way that they command in war. And we should just set ourselves that standard. I don't. I, I think on that you genuinely can be both and expect to have both. It'd be really great to hear your reflections on defence. So, when you were serving, um, when you go on your visits, what do you still recognise, and what really sort of keeps you up at night because it's so frustrating that things haven't changed? Yeah. And what do you see that you're like, gosh, I wish I was serving in, in today's armed forces because this is exciting. So, I mean, earlier on, you asked me kind of about the sort of opportunity for people. So I won't go back there because, I mean, I think the key thing is, is that I was in a, I was in a military that was campaigning in Iraq and Afghanistan and was on a campaign footing for that purpose. A generation before me, they were on a military that was campaigning in Northern Ireland and was otherwise resident in Germany. And that was a very, very kind of, singular experience i think that the the amazing thing for the armed forces now is that uk foreign policy is more global the threats that we face are more global 
what we ask our armed forces to respond to is therefore more varied and more global. Now, we've got to sort out all the enablement and practicalities of getting people off to do all that stuff, but I think that's cool and, and a better proposition than the one that, that, that I had. For the, when I go on visits, and by the way, there was someone who popped up on your Twitter who was like, oh, why doesn't he ever go on surprise visits? When you go, you only see the sort of yeah, rolled out that. carpet and they only show you what they want to see. Well, I mean, yeah, but like that's a bit crap. Like minister, you can't do that. If you're a minister or you're, the, you're a chief, just rocking up at an average unit and saying, I know you're about to do Friday PT, but surprise, I'm here and I want to kind of catch you out. Have you got a spare burger? It does, it does, does it? Well, gee, I definitely wouldn't go during Friday PT nowadays. So I, look, I, that's just not realistic. So of course I know that when I go, I'm seeing a bit of varnish, but it's not that hard to scratch at the varnish and you can see around the corner whether there are guys that are, guys and girls that are having a great time or whether there's a guys and girls who look pretty dispirited you can you can just tell i i love the fact that our people know what they're about whenever you you know whether you are stood in the ship control center talking to the duty staff or whether you are sat talking to a section of riflemen or whether you are in the hangar talking to a bunch of engineers they just like it's a it's an amazing thing to be in the company of people who know exactly what they're about they know their job they're confident in their ability to know their job and that's cool the banter the sort of the wit the atmosphere is also intoxicating and there's there's just something cool about the camaraderie my mates are just starting to come through as as COs you know some of them are some are already in command some of them are uh, have been selected the job I have is cool I think this is the best job in government and yet, when I visit them in their camp and they're the colonel, it's just awesome. Just like that sense of togetherness and purpose. and Amazing, amazing. You also asked me, though, what is frustrating. The most frustrating bit is that when you invite the criticism, and just as I can't go and catch people out, what I can do is say to an RSM or some of the science mess, look, come on, just you and I, tell me what it is. And the stuff that comes back is about lived experience, getting messed around on tasks that they think are less important. They complain about, you know, you get complaints about the state of some service family accommodation. You get complaints about cancelled exercises or not having time on the ranges and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's frustrating to hear that at that, unit level those very army focused ones but the navy and the air force you hear you know the air force you'll hear about an engineer force that is burnt out is over is overstretched in the navy you hear quite a lot about about sort of you know very very long periods of time at sea and and a work-life balance that, that's struggling and so you hear that stuff at unit level and then in the conversations i have we are all aware of those issues as well and the chiefs are really honest about those challenges and then there's a sort of machine in between where lots and lots of people are working really really hard and i wonder sometimes whether me fellow ministers chiefs you know we i don't know if we do we set do we set precise enough priorities to just cut through and actually address 
the challenges that we know there are and the field force tells us there are. Uh, I'm, I'm loathe to blame a load of people that are working really hard in various HQs to do the best job they can. I suspect that if you got the average SO1 in Andover onto your thing, they would say, we're just trying to spin a gazillion plates because those clowns in London don't know what the priority is. I don't know. You, you, you asked me what's difficult, that, that's the bit that's difficult, that, that the things that they would want to see changed, I want to change. And I know that pretty much the whole machine in between wants to change, and yet somehow we just can't make it happen. So we're trying to end on a positive. Yeah, that was very damn <laughs> For our listeners, what would you like to see from the Wave Room? I would like you to burst into print on the back of this podcast, minus personal insults. But let us know let us know what you think. What are the differences that that could be made? Some of the innovations that that we've given to the Ukrainians are have come from just really great tactical cunning people who who know their business and had an idea ping it in the defense command paper won't answer all of defense's problems there's no way in the world that that will happen but we are urgently trying to get back to being a dynamic lean war fighting machine and Encourage us in doing so by giving us your ideas for you know, where it is and you know, send us your examples of superfluous process, send us your examples of, of the unessential getting in the way of the, the day job. Please, 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 please don't use it as an opportunity to take out your grievance against Chief Petty Officer X or Sergeant Y. That's just not fair. But, but do be part of the conversation because you know, we're pretty pretty comfortable in where where we're at ben's been secretary for four years i've been doing this for three and a half cds has been in post for two years perm sex been in post two years you know we're kind of we're we're sufficiently confident in what we're doing that we can take a bit of criticism and it'd be good to hear hopefully we'll catch up after the defense matter paper comes out hope so too thank you thank you the wavel room is free to use but it's not free to run if you can spare some change, head to our website and donate today so we can keep bringing you the content we know you love.